Welcome everyone to Big Tent Live Events, the lockdown live online event series brought to you by Torch, the Oxford Research Centre for the Humanities, as part of the Humanities Cultural Programme, itself one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwartzman Centre for the Humanities here in Oxford. My name is Wes Williams and I'm a Professor of French Literature, a Fellow of St Edmund Hall, and I'm also the Knowledge Exchange Champion here at Torch. The Big Tent Live Event Series is our way of bringing together once a week researchers and students, performers and practitioners from across the different humanities disciplines. We're bringing you this event programme online while we're all keeping our distance, and we hope that you're all safe and well during these difficult times. Our aim here, as regular viewers will know, is to explore together important subjects and ask challenging questions about areas such as the environment, medical humanities, ethics and AI, the public, the private and the common good. And we will celebrate storytelling and music, performance and poetry, identity and community. If you would like to put forward any questions to our speakers about the topic that we're discussing during the event tonight, please pop them in the comments box in YouTube. We encourage you to submit these as early as possible and I can then ensure that they inform and enrich the Q&A part of our discussion in about half an hour or so. Now onto our excellent speakers tonight. I can't tell you how excited and honored I am to host and welcome, joining us for the final event of this phase of our online series, both Oliver Taplin, Emeritus Professor of Classics and Fellow of Magdalen College here in Oxford, and Fiona Shaw, CBE actor and director extraordinaire. Neither of our speakers really needs any introduction but I'll embarrass them both by saying just a tiny bit about them, just really a sentence or two, to clarify why we're bringing them together online this evening to address, along with you, this week's theme of tragedy and plague. Oliver first. Oliver Taplin has a central concern throughout his work with the performance of Greek poetry, tragedy and comedy, both in ancient and in modern times. Some 25 years ago, together with Edith Hall, Oliver set up the archive of performances for Greek and Roman drama here in Oxford and thereby revolutionized the study of this area. And in the last few decades, he has worked both with the National Theatre on different productions of the Aristia and with the RSE on the Thebans, along with a whole range of other uh, productions. An inspiration then to many generations of playmakers and playgoers alike. Oliver has, in his retirement, further explored the craft of translating. Fiona Shaw is an actor and director, working on film and TV, in opera and in the theatre. Like Oliver, albeit in different ways, she's worked extensively with both the RSC and the National Theatre, as well as performing and directing in a huge and exciting range of spaces and places, exploring both contemporary work and the classical tragedies we'll be talking about this evening, from Electra to massively and memorably Medea. I trust you'll forgive me if I say that there are many watching here today who will feel that Fiona has done more to making classical tragedy engaging, urgent and powerfully present in contemporary culture than pretty much any other performer alive. Welcome to you both then, Oliver and Fiona. Thank you again for joining us in our big tent. And without further ado, I'd like to hand over to you, Oliver, to start the real discussion going. Thank you. Thank you, Wes. Thank you. Um, well, I'm going to try and set the question rolling with a little mini professorial lecture uh, and then throw the ball to Fiona and then we can then throw it to and fro and see whether we catch it or drop it. Um, 
the question I want to set rolling is this. Um, what is tragedy good for? Does a tragedy do people any good? Why should people who have quite enough suffering in their outside world uh, go to the theatre to witness and live through the terrible sufferings of others? And that question's been sharpened for me by the pandemic that has struck us and the way that our theatres have had to close. And it's made me ask a question which, as far as I can see, has hardly ever been asked before, which was, which is, did the Athenians, the ancient Athenians in the 5th century BC, did they call off their big annual theatre event uh, when they were struck with their terrible plague? And it was a much more terrible plague than ours. It came and went across the years between 430 and 425 BC or BCE. Um, it had the most terrible symptoms. It seems to have been quite like typhoid, but I think the experts think it's probably a pathogen that no longer exists, but it had a mortality rate of something like 25%. And we know quite a lot about the horrible symptoms um, and its effects because the great historian Thucydides actually caught this plague himself. He was there in Athens, suffered from the plague himself and survived and observed that people who um, survived didn't catch it again or didn't get it again, um, that, that they were in effect immune. Um, and he also observed that doctors and care workers were particularly vulnerable to getting the plague. Um, but what doesn't seem to have arisen is, is the idea of contagion. So that's the plague in Athens. The theatre in Athens uh, was not a matter of daily entertainment as, as ours is or as ours was until recently, uh, and as indeed as it was in Shakespeare's London. Um, instead, it was this big event in the spring and the preparations for it started the previous summer. And there were a lot of people involved in it and there was a big budget involved in it. And rehearsals went on through the uh, entire winter preparing for the spring festival of Dionysus, where thousands of people, literally thousands of people gathered in the theater to watch three days of tragedies, three competing tragedians, each one putting on three tragedies and a satyr play. Now, the, quest, the answer to the question, did the theater go on during those years of plague is yes, it did. Uh, we know for sure that there were comedies put on during that year, those years, and we know of at least one tragedy, um, maybe more, but one we actually know for sure, we have good evidence, was put on during those years, and that was the Hippolytus of Euripides, which was put on in 428. Now, of course, it's not, uh, the Hippolytus isn't a play about plague, it doesn't have plague in it, and any more than Shakespeare's plays um, had plagues in them, uh, plagues put on between 1603 and 1610, the years when plague came and went in Shakespeare's London. It's a play about this beautiful, clean living young man, Hippolytus, <clears throat> who hates sex, and his passionate stepmother, Phaedra, who simply cannot stop herself from becoming infatuated with him, cannot stop her desire for him. 
and you have actually four main people in Eurovideo Hippolytus, all of them doing their best. There's no, there are no fools and there are no villains in this play. They're all of them doing their best to live as they can according to their own values, according to what they think is right. And all four of them come crashing down in disaster and the play ends with death and waste. Now, <clears throat> why in 428 should people go on witnessing such suffering? Why in a time of such suffering? In 2020, it seems to me that with much less suffering, we've, we've mostly, I speak for myself anyway, turned to Netflix and turned to relatively lightweight uh, television. Uh, so why did the Athenians think it was good for them to go on going to tragedies? Uh, and might the fact that they did have something to tell us about going to the theatre and something about tragedy? That's, that's the question I want to set rolling. Now, I have got uh, an idea that I'd like to try out later uh, uh, about how they thought that tragedy might be good for them. Um, but I think at this stage, I really ought to hand over to Fiona and please, Fiona, go wh wherever you want. Though there is a, there is a question I'd quite like to, to, to start with, um, which is when, when you perform tragedy, do you have a sense of how your audience is receiving it? And do you have a sense of what, what it's doing for them? Uh, or is that a, not, not really a, a, a real question? I certainly d d don't perform tragedies for any medicinal reason, <laughs> but I think that all theatre now is an attempt to get back to what must have been the stunning novelty of what it was to watch debates about the complexity of human life that the Greeks had. I, um, I suppose they went to the theatre, didn't they? Because they wanted to learn the nuance of what it was to be human. What shall I do if this happens? What shall I do if my you know, stepmother falls in love with me? What, what, what did I do if I fall in love with my stepson? These questions are the big questions and they're both engaging and distracting. But I think in my case, I, I've been stunned in my few experiences in Greek tragedy with the effect that Greek tragedy has on audiences, particularly if you pull out the, if you try not to be too ritualistic with them, but allow them to just be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you talk about plague, the only time I ever performed anything in anything remotely like a time of plague was that when we first did Electra at the Barbican and then subsequently we remounted it, we took it to Derry um, in the north of Ireland in 1992 in a, in a week where there had been a terrible bomb in a local um, betting office and some people had been killed. So this was completely by accident, as was uh, your Hippolytus in, 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 the, in the plague period. And we were there, we performed in a sports centre and the audience came and we performed the play. And as you know, Electra is a strange little play because it's not really a play in which the protagonist has any flaw particularly. I mean, she may have flaws as a person, but they're not crucial to the action. She's a, she's a trapped observer of a terrible event and therefore wants the, the thing to be um, uh, solved, re resolved by her, her brother killing her mother. And uh, John Lynch was from the North of Ireland who played Orestes. And that was very powerful at the end of the play where he was able to stand and say to Aegisthus, you know, you killed my, my father, 
I'm going to kill you. The play finishes quite quickly after that. There's no great grandeur in the play. Clytemnestra's dead and, and they, they just sort of, Augustus says, oh, all right, I'm, I'm done for then. And this is going to go on then and just leaves the stage at the end of the play. At that moment, normally, of course, we've been around the world by then, uh, people applauded. There was complete silence in the auditorium, complete silence. And I remember a sort of flame of panic going through me, a sort of, I thought we had offended or we hadn't been good or we hadn't done it well, though it had been the same as every other night. And the audience stood up, all of them stood up without communicating with each other in silence. And they just stood. And the standing was clearly a compliment to return to the actors. The silence was they couldn't clap because it was too near their recent experience. Oh. So I suggested to the audience that we would get washed, come out and talk to the act to the character, to the um, audience. So we all came out, there's 10 or 12 of us, and we all went around the auditorium, we stood. And I remember people berating us for putting on this play because they felt it encouraged vengeance, that the play was about vengeance. John's accent was local, quite by chance. And it seemed to have a kind of will for vengeance because we were halfway through the Aristotle. We were good, you know, it could have kept going. And it was the most astonishing evenings of my life was that week. I, I, I'll never forget it. I realized that the plays were way beyond theater. They are, they are, I don't know, spiritual bombs is what they are. That's a, that's a very striking anecdote though. I mean, I, I thought it was going to go a different way. I remember Peter Stein saying that when he took uh, three sisters to Moscow, uh, at the end, there was a long, long silence. He thought the thing had been a flop. And then there was the most terrific applause. But but you had no applause. But I'm, I'm fascinated with that because I've got a I've got a bit of a thing about curtain calls. It's always seemed to me that um, at the end of plays, but, but I'm thinking particularly of tragedy, that the transition of the curtain call between the world of the play and the world outside the play has a, has a rather crucial place um, that... Um, particularly in a play where there's been death uh, and there have been the dead have been there in the presence of the audience on, on stage and they've felt the presence of death and then the dead person at the end uh, stands up, uh, smiles, takes the applause um, it, it, it actually rather reminds me of Prospero at the, at the end of The Tempest when uh, it's probably romantic to think that it's in some way Shakespeare giving up his art but he says that by his so by 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 my by my so potent art, he's raised yeah. the dead from their from their graves. So I don't know whether I mean that that's a really extraordinary story about a lack of curtain call. Um, yeah, but and it happened repeatedly. It happened the following day as well. By which time journalists began to turn up to write about this phenomenon because it seemed to happen quite unselfconsciously. But uh, curtain calls are an interesting moment. Um, when we finished Medea, as you know, the children get killed. And even though sort of technically it was off stage, you saw one of the children running away from its mother and being caught. And of course the bodies are brought out, which is a very important part of the play and, and used to have a huge effect. Particularly in New York, people used to faint, scream. There was lots of uh, ambulances called. Uh, in fact, on one occasion, we had to stop the play with the dead children in, uh, under the arms. But at the end of the play, we would come out uh, uh, the children dead, Medea back in some sort of circular nightmare with her husband Jason, and the audience would clap, clap, and erupt and relieve that the thing was over. And when the children came on, they got the biggest clap of all. Right. Um, 
So the audience had imagined them dead and then were so relieved and, and more than that, were complicit with their death. That's what I think. But, and, and then those children in Medea do actually speak and they actually sort of, uh, I forget if they did in your production. They don't. Uh, they don't. I think they, they have a scene earlier with a, with a, yes, a man yes. who looks after them. There's a, there's a fellow who, who might teach her who looks after them. Yes. But no, they don't speak. I, I mean, you can find the murder. They don't, you, you didn't have them sort of say, one says to the other, save me, you know. My no, oh, I don't think they do. I think, I think we're all behind a glass thing. So they just saw the child run and the mum go and yes. grab the child. Y yes, yes. That's and that was the poor the child trying to escape and, and yeah yeah so intent on her revenge that uh, yeah yeah I, I mean at one point I just carried them I was just called them they the the, the chorus knew that they were going to be killed and Medea just gathers the children and they come to her very happily and wander off with her and the audience are going no no you know <laughs> but they have been collusive with this with the logic of the play up to that point and I, I mean I I think when you're talking about um tragedy in the time of plague I, I don't think the story has to be pertinent to the plague that is happening in the world because of course we're all dealing with personal uh questions of ourselves and i think the plays fundamentally deal with the domestic and the personal that has huge political ramifications maybe but i i think that one of the biggest things I notice in plays, and certainly Medea it is, is that Medea herself is complicit with her past. She married a fellow she shouldn't have married. She left her home. She killed her brother. She ran off with this guy. The notion that she could start again in a new country, free of any ramifications, must be part of the reason she's furious when he leaves her. Yeah. And, and in that way, it's almost the beginning of subtext, a thing that we didn't think really came in until the 20th century. But the Greeks... I think they understood that you're only telling the the iconic bit of the story, but all the layers of the story, as complex as we are, sit underneath, and you can find them. Yeah, I mean, actually, I can't resist trying out a, um, a little bit of uh, um, classical scholarship on you on, on, the, on this matter, because we we know um, right back in the very early days of tragedy, and we're talking about the 490s, right at the beginning of the, of the fifth century, um, there was a very important city in Asia Minor called Miletus that was sacked by the Persians, um, horribly uh, defeated by the Persians. And this city was very close to the Athenians. So they had a lot of ties in it, it was close to the Athenians' hearts. And um, a couple of years after that terrible event, uh, a contemporary of Aeschylus uh, called Phrynichus put on a play in which he dramatized the sack of Miletus. He dramatized this terrible event that had happened two years earlier and the audience was so, the Athenians were so distressed by, as this, we know about this from Herodotus. So, you know, we have it from a source that is quite close to the thing happening. It's not just a later anecdote. He says the audience was so distressed at seeing their own troubles that they fined him a very considerable fine and said that the play must never be put on again. And never again did Athenian tragedy um, Direct, di directly dramatize what's going on just outside the theater, the sufferings just outside the theater. And that, in a way, that's what happened in Derry, that it was too close, too, too close, close to home. Yes, yes, too because close to the sufferings. Yes, I think that's right. That's very, very interesting. I, I think we're still like that. It's why people write very delicately shaded um, memoirs or, 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 or rather call them fiction. I mean, pe think people, them fiction because we can't bear it if, if it's got the full glare of being actually ourselves. I think that's fair enough. And I think also 
you know, performers, you're always performing a character, but of course a huge part of it is performing yourself. It doesn't mean that you have to have been the, the you know, you, but all of us are potentially the protagonist of any play. That's the, that's the charm of it and the skill of it and the terror of it. Yeah. Can, can I ask you, because I know that Epidaurus, the wonderful theatre of Epidaurus, which I think when Callas sang, sang Medea there, rather than Eurotes Medea, but Cherubini's Medea, I think they managed to squeeze in 18,000 people. Yeah. Um, and you performed Happy Days, what, about 10 years ago? In, in, in that wonderful circle, that amazing performance space, and there you were in the Beckett, entirely by yourself, with an audience of thousands. Uh, was that a very was that somehow different, a different kind of experience? Yes. And just before I say that, you know, it's interesting because I don't think the play Electra had been done very often in Derry before. So in a funny way, it was a new play. In fact, going into the play in Derry, uh, two boys were overheard. One fellow saying, this play was performed first 400 years roughly BC. It took a long time to get to Derry. <laughs> well, when we went to uh, Epidaurus, which is a fantastic thing to be allowed to do, we were one of the first new plays to be done in that space because it's been kept pretty sacredly since it's finding, hasn't it, as a, as a, as a Greek tragedy spot. And yeah. um, so we performed Beckett's Happy Days, which is, of course, a modern tragedy. And um, in that this woman, you know, goes on believing that she's high as a kite every day being another lovely day. But in fact, she's disintegrating fast and time is sort of accelerating underneath her and therefore underneath the audience. And um, it was thrilling. All I remember is that I, I sat, of course, you know, in Happy Days, um, the woman sits with her first of all up to her waist and in the next second half she's up to her neck in her earth so she's the visual image is just a picture but what she says is at odds with the picture and there the drama sits that's all it is it's genius of, of Beckett and um, the audience sat and I had this vision as I looked out I thought I just have to take all these people in t-shirts and jeans and put them in togas or or gorgeous robes, and I'm there. I am descended from those wonderful players who must have been here doing that. Mm -hmm. And I remember a bird singing, and my voice, I didn't have any, of course, microphoning, you don't need it there, and just speaking, and the silence, and the mountain, and the mountains beyond, where the flames were lit to say that the Trojan War was over. And it was a moment where I stood, I felt between heaven and earth, you know, between eternity and, you're both in the present and in imagination and you're in the play and it was absolutely mind-blowing but the audience there come from from Athens or from everywhere some by boat some by car and um, some whatever way they can get there which is very like how they came before that they would come together and there's a so that the audience are coming in a slightly different way than the way they come when they buy their ticket in the west end they're yeah. coming to walk up a path. They have to arrive at the place and they have to yield to the circular swirl of the magic that's going to be offered to them. And I, I think that's roughly the same. Yes, and it, it was a pilgrimage. I mean, and, and when I first went there um, a very long time ago, uh, there was no, the modern road that wasn't there. Um, mm -hmm. It took much longer to get to. And as you say, people come by boat and then from the harbour, about 10 miles away, they get the bus up to the theatre. But most of the people came in buses. 
and mm. they went back to discuss the play all week, presumably, yeah. or all year till the next play, because they knew the play was about them, even if it wasn't directly about them. It was about them and how they were going to proceed. And I wonder whether your question at the beginning is, you know, do we should we be doing a trilogy or, or, or Greek tragedies on Netflix so that we're all dealing with those questions, or have the questions changed, or have the, you know, who are our who are our heroes or our who are our demons? You know, are the government when they make these terrible mistakes killing us? You know, these are the questions that we may want to ask, but if we ask them too directly, we won't be able to answer them in the glare of political choice. Yes, but also, I mean, watching them on a television screen is so different from this sense of pilgrimage, this sense of coming to a special place. I mean, I'd lo I love it when the theatre is site specific and, and people have to come to it as a pilgrimage. And actually, that's particularly relevant to Epidaurus because um, the town of Epidaurus was down on the coast. And what you, with the theatre, is part of a healing, a place of healing, sa uh, sacred to Asclepius, uh, where people would come for, for cures and healing. And every year there was a big, big festival. Um, and there used to be a procession coming up the, up the hill from the town and so on. And um, so people would gather there and when they watched a play in ancient times, they were in a place of healing. And I think perhaps still there's something of a, a sense of a place of healing. There's a wonderful Seamus Heaney poem called Out of the Bag, where he um, writes about Epidaurus as, as a place of healing. Um, and that brings us back to plague, of course. Plagues in general are about healing. I do think they're about healing. They, they, they lance a boil often. They dare to face into something and allow the action to unfold in front of them. But at their best, you see, I, I have this theory, but it really comes from playing Shakespeare, that because we tend to breathe with the actor, if we are engaged with the play, or the actor is so enthusiastic that your heart race your heart begins to race with the actor, then you're sort of at one with the actor. So I begin to think that the audience aren't just watching the play, like watching it. They are in it. They are part of it. They also take out the sword at that moment. They, in their mind's eye, they identify with it because their blood is, is sort of pumping at the same rate as the actors. At good, you know, that's a good play, a bad play, you're asleep. Yeah. They're living, and they're so living with it, yes. They're complicit with it and they have, they have, enacted it themselves and ideally they should be tired too at the end of watching watching a play yeah. and but it does heal them because they have you know vicariously done that action or forgiven themselves that action or resolved that action or that family yeah i think this is the opportunity for me to say what the, the idea i had about about tragedy with a kind of medical metaphor because um, you said that they're tired at the end and yeah. that, that reminds me, though, of, of um, what people usually say about the effect of Greek tragedy on the audience, which they've derived from Aristotle, which is catharsis. I mean, yeah. Aristotle in his poetics contributed the word catharsis to the languages of the world, and it's a word that's used every day. Um, but catharsis has something to do with cleaning, purifying. Um, and most people think they know, or perhaps we think we know what catharsis is, because we, at the end we feel somehow washed out. <clears throat> we, feel, um, we, we feel we've been cleansed of something. But I, I'm not sure that is the right metaphor. And there's another semi-medical metaphor, which I think might be better, because I, I feel 
But at the end of the tragedy, the audience doesn't leave something behind, but takes something with mm -hmm. them, takes with them kind of antibodies. Um, and uh, so I was very excited when I came across the metaphor in Friedrich Schiller. He's the, the poet of the Ode to Joy, you know, which is now the European hymn, who in, I think it's 1792, coined the phrase that said that tragedy was an inoculation, an inoculation against the inevitable. And he meant, uh, and it didn't mean, uh, and the, the inevitability, that is the, ine the inevitability of suffering, the inevitability of mortality. Of course, it doesn't stop people catching suffering and catching uh, mortality. And that, that isn't, I think, what inoculation quite meant to, to Schiller. Um, but he, he, it's, it protected them um, and made them a better able to cope, perhaps better able to understand uh, suffering. This is just four years before Jenner um, discovered vaccination and, uh, and, and coined the word vaccination. So I'm, what I'd like to try out is the idea that tragedy, instead of being a catharsis, instead of being a, a leaving behind, you take yeah. with you into your life afterwards. Uh, an inoculation. Yeah, and, and our ailment, what would you say our ailment, obviously in the big world is this, is this virus, but our ailment is ignorance, isn't it? And, and uh, the plays can help you with ignorance, with our ignorance about family or, or bad action or the consequence of action. Ignorance yeah. is that, that, and Greeks are very good at dealing with it, but they don't give you, as you say, a knowledge. So the inoculation doesn't mean that you will never participate, you will never do anything wrong, nothing will ever go wrong but you are mildly defended against it yeah yeah or you have a way of coping with it or yeah. you won't go mad at least you'll understand it and um, i'm obsessed with reading every day you know the amount of people who've died in this country or and of course it's a completely useless number but it does make me feel i have a sense of how present the virus is if i know how many people have died of it and it also goes on reminding me of how serious it is mm. so none of this cures us of the virus but it it allows one to cope with it doesn't it so yes and to have some understanding and, and not just to feel you're driven crazy by the by the complete meaninglessness and yes yeah. well randomness randomness is a terrible thing and um i think you know the but the greeks don't shirk from that they say the gods are random. They, they, so then you feel comfortable that, well, oh, the gods are random, so anything can happen. Uh, but, the, but also, I think the other thing is that the artistry, the art form, and the art, the, the art and, and craft of the performers as well, create a shape. They, they create a form. Uh, they can, they, they in, some, in some way, they contain it. Um, and so that it, instead of it just being a meaningless kind of splurge, of uh, of cacophony and yeah. of randomness, um, the suffering is given is given music, is given poetry, is given the the voice. Uh, and when you say vaccine, you know, in a way, each new generation of actors has to create a vaccine because playing the same old words, the same old way, or borrowing another style from another time 
doesn't have the effect on the audience that you're talking about, the inoculation. Mm. It has to be a new strain of, of, uh, of vaccine. Yeah. So that, that's, I think, what the actors spend their time doing, trying to find a new way of doing it, which replies usually, usually to the moment that we're in, both vocally, in terms of the psychology of the moment we're in, and the way we are, because otherwise the thing doesn't have its magic. Mm. I'm very taken with what you say about the physical experience of the audience, that they, they have a somatic uh, response that is somehow yes. in, in, tune, in tune with either the, heart, the heartbeat, the, the sweat, the fear. I mean, they think now that the synapses in the mind, the synapses yeah. are doing the similar thing both in the actor and in the audience, yeah. if the audience are attuned. And the, the actor's job, in a way, is to, I won't use your inoculator, but is to, is to stun the audience into joining the story. Otherwise, they're thinking, oh, gosh, I must bake a cake when I go yes. home or something. Yeah. No, they and have they to be drawn right into the world, yes. They come into the world, and the mental energy of the actor is to will that to happen and the, the director and the lighting and the the event has to has to sort of charge them and increase their energy to a much higher level than it was when they sat down in there yeah. it's why peter brooks says you know the blackness of the theater just before a play starts that moment is the most important moment of silence because it is not the moment of the grave it is the moment of expectation and that's yeah. when the whole thing will suddenly reveal i won't reveal in a moment but it'll you're drawn into a revelation and you will leave ideally the theater just with that under your in your pocket or in your mind or yeah yes you've taken it in that's the point and it's not there to cure you because you can't be cured of no. life and sorrow no but it gives you it gives you a kind of a protection of understanding but then what you're saying making films then must be very very different Making films, I'm sure the films, the film editor and the film director have a great fun making the effects on people. But the, to perform in a film is to perform in silence in a room. It's a bit like this time of COVID is that you are performing with a group of people. You make the thing happen, it's put in a box, it's taken away and you never see it again. So, you know, you, you, when I watch myself on a, on a piece of film or television, I, I don't relate to it at all. It's yeah. not happening in that moment. It happened months ago. Yeah. And then you have no curtain call and, you know, the dead stay dead. They, they, they don't stand up again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, I, yeah. Remember at the end of Hedda Garber, which we, which we uh, filmed for the BBC, and at the very end we ran out of time and our money ran out of everything and Hedda Garber had to die. And so I went bang and I lay down and a lady ran in, put some blood quickly on my brain and they just fro froze it and they cut. And they were able to extend that dead, you know, that dead shot of the of Hedda on the ground. But they had to extend it. They had to invent it. In fact, I was only on the ground for a second because the whole thing. <laughs> I, I, I love, che I mean, I, I'm passionate about Chekhov. And you, and I regard those as, as tragedies. And you did yeah. the... You did the Seagull, didn't you? I did the Seagull Peter Stein for the Edinburgh Festival. And he, he, he is very keen on Greek tragedy. And he particularly likes that it should only be on once. He likes the thing happening on one night. He never watches it again. He only watches the first night. He's not interested in previews and making it better. He thinks the group come together, an audience come, and it happens in that first, first performance. It's a very old-fashioned 
you know, but maybe very profound relationship to it. But we did the seagull, and he had he had two wonderful ideas. Uh, one was that the silence that the that the group of people watching the play in Act One have when they look out of the in a Czech in a cliche Czechovian situation of looking out of the forest and and somebody finally says, oh, you know, something about. It. That pause is written in as a pause, and the pause used to be about 10 seconds in English shows, or maybe 15. But with Peter, it was two and a half minutes. And we sat for two and a half minutes, which sounds in the theatre like two and a half hours. And the audience began to first smile, then titter, then go silence, and then weep. So that's the power of the emptiness of a non-event, of, of, of an event that is nothing in theatre. And, and it just went silent and for two and a half minutes. At the end of the play, they're all playing a card game and, and Constantine commits suicide. Oh, sorry, this is this is not my machine. It's, it's <laughs> um, and at the end, they play and replay a card game. So Constantine's shocked, somebody says, what's that? You hear a gunshot. They say nothing and they go back to play the card game and they use exactly the same numbers as we used in the previous game. So it was as if time went forward and then went, whoa back yes. it was utterly genius it felt like time had been held i'm so yeah. sorry i don't know how to do this <laughs> that's all right i i um uh he did do a wonderful oristaya um and i didn't i didn't see it in berlin the original production i saw it in russian in the theater de Pedoras. Uh, it finished at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> and uh um, the everybody said that the, the russian the production in Russian wasn't really as good as the production had been back in Berlin in 1980-81, but it was still quite something. One of the, one of the great directors, yes. I did fly to Epidaurus for one night, the maddest thing I ever did. I flew to Greece for one night to watch Electra at Epidaurus that he, Peter Stein did. Huh? I did go for that one night. Oh, yeah. it's the Electra, yes, yes. Uh, that, that, that was, big, uh, with a big bath with gold light coming out of it. it was yes, absolutely... and I love they were kind of cattle troughs, weren't there? And, uh, when, when, after, when Electra uh, has, su has succeeded in luring her mother to her death, uh, she was wearing these terrible black uh, rags and she would sweep yeah. the stage. When, and then she plunged into one, into one of these uh, things and came out and was dressed in white. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was very, very memorable. Yeah, he always does a bit of magic for somebody who's searing me for the truth. He, he, he finds it through the, the spin of magic. Yeah. yeah. But I remember you in black as a, as Electra in in the Barbican. It's not something yes. that gets. And yes, with, uh, yes. With, am I imagining? Yeah. Or did you throw a pomegranate on the ground? I did. In fact, it was quite by chance. Deborah, the director, brought in pomegranates one morning, and they were being held. Just we were just using them, and I threw these two pomegranates on the ground, and they split open. And the audience used to go mad as if they were, because of course they've been talking about dead heads and cutting heads open uh, right up to that moment. I mean, spit his skull with a blood red axe is, is, uh, is, is Electra's first lines or one of her first lines. And so they split open and everybody just got stunned as if these two heads split open. It was a, it's a marvelous play because it's a small play, but in it, all the pain of people um, in the play is, is explored and uh, I, I think it's one of the great great plays because it's very rarely done because it doesn't seem to have much going for it but it's because it's a sidelong play it's just a play about a girl who everybody's forgotten but it's not really about her she, it's really about Orestes coming home 
It's, and it's full of dramatic irony. The audience meet Orestes at the very beginning of the play and they see him. Then a, a door, he disappears. A girl comes on and says, oh, my brother will never come home. And the audience go, you know, he is home, he is home. <laughs> it's, it's just the way in which the Greeks understood those necessities of the theatre so early is breathtaking. Uh, I, I would love to continue that we could continue this obviously for the for the whole hour but I, it'd be re also really good to uh, I don't know if Wes is there whether we whether it, it's a good time for us to start inviting some questions. I am indeed here yeah no no I could happily um, listen to more stories about pomegranates and um, <laughs> and what have you for a while yet but there are a, a whole bunch of questions that have come in so I'll pass some of them to you and see see what you make of them. Um, in particular, I guess we might start with the ones that are looking at um, where your discussion started. In other words, theatre in a time of plague um, and the kind of correlation between then and now. Um, and <clears throat> there's a, a number of questions that are all sort of similar in a way. And they're asking, so we knew, we know, thanks to various historians and tragedians, what the plague was like for them. Um, do you imagine that we ought to be somehow representing the plague for the future generations? In other words, what we're going through now, um, is it our job to sort of tell people thousands of years down the line what it's like for us? I mean, I think there's something, you know, as Fiona said, you don't, um, to make a thing effective, you don't put it straight on. It has to be it has to be um, made real through other people. So mm -hmm. I think if, if we're to do that, you know, it, it's not, not a matter of describing and it's not a matter of realistically portraying, mm -hmm. but a matter of somehow conveying how it, how it, is, how it affects people, what mm -hmm. it does to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and I think rightly, uh, there's been quite a lot of emphasis on the, the mental health yep. uh, dimension. Yep. Of, of this lockdown, which is, um, has been pretty terrible, for, I think, for many, many families. Mm -hmm. It goes to the question of closeness and distance that sort of ran through some of your discussion, whether it's in relation to the dairy uh, performance or in relation to, uh, you'll forgive me, I hope, Oliver, I can't remember the name of the tragedian who was banned from ever writing a play yes. so close to the events again. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm somebody who works on 16th, 17th century French uh, writing and, and tragedy as well, where, again, there's sort of there's an agreement that you can't possibly write about the recent civil war in a tragedy directly, whereas you might do it indirectly. Um, I, I'm just inviting you to think a bit more about this whole sort of question of indirection or closeness and distance, um, because there's a number of questions in that in that sort of area. We don't know the stories yet, do we? I mean, you know, they say that domestic violence has shot up. There'll be some extraordinary stories about people being locked in together and what that has done. Mm -hmm. That was something into the area, which is often the emergency area of Greek tragedy. And I think there was a very interesting moment, which it would be too personal to ever write about in a play. But the moment that the, the prime minister was in at death's door is a very interesting moment, given his policies being perceived as cavalier until then. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, they're the moments that would produce drama, but of course you'd have to change the names and change. But there was a moment when we were in a moment of potential change, which is what uh, tragedies do produce, huge change. And mm -hmm. that might have gone the other way, you know, and then 
there would have been an element of tragedy. Mm -hmm. So tragedy hovers like a virus around us too. Yeah, yeah. And, it has to, and it has to be made particular. Yep. And, and and almost all the tragedies are are much much concerned with the family. The yeah. family is 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 at the core of this. There's a wonderful story of a a French sage who was told in Mao's China that um, the the Chinese um, had done away with the family, and he said, "But this is terrible. It's the end of tragedy." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and um so so uh, if there's going to be a future way of bringing home what it's been like mm -hmm. it but, be but the plays will be changed won't they by what's happened because we are much more in touch uh with with things now antigone you know people not being able to bury their families we're mm -hmm. already in act one of antigone everybody yeah. is who has a, a dead relative they're not being allowed to bury the what is the effect on the on the family or on the on the people mourning to be yeah. not allowed to bury your dead. I mean, that's yeah. something very profound and will have a terrible effect on us that we uh, have yet. One of the most out. terrible things, and we know in Athens at the time of the plague that um, there weren't proper funerals and um, uh, they've excavated uh, some mass burials because yeah. there was no time to have proper to have proper yeah. funerals. No, I, th I think I'm sure that's a very strong uh, recurrent. Because theme both in well in a whole range of Greek plays about the right to grieve and the right to bury one's dead and again there's been uh, I'm sure that's a thing that we'll return to. Um, the, another sort of contemporary ancient um, question uh, that's come up which actually speaks to your inoculation theory Oliver um, which is um, so the Greeks carried on through their plague we've stopped um, are we missing something important therefore by not having the inoculation of tragedy during the plague itself. Um, I mean, the, 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 it seems to me the most obvious thing we're missing is the is the communal, the communality of going to the theatre. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you, you, you go with all these other people and you gather close together in a way that we can't and experience what Fiona was talking about, the, 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 that you enter into the world of the play you, you become physically and, and psychologically part of that world for, mm -hmm. for, the, for the duration of the play. Yep. And we're, we're certainly miss, we're missing, we're missing communality, aren't we? We're missing, and even um, there was a, a live stream from Epidaurus just the other evening of uh, Aeschylus Persians, which we watched on a tiny little iPad at, at home. Um, and I didn't, see, I didn't see the audience gathering. I gather, uh, we started watching at the beginning, but I gather that people saw the audience gathering and that they were all had to be socially distanced, of course. Did you, did you see that, Fiona? I saw them all coming in and there were sometimes groups of two or three together and then suddenly a big empty, you know, it, it, it felt like a half empty theatre. Yes. And then at the end of Epidaurus, when you, when you leave, you leave in this great sort of wave of humanity. And, and at the end, they said, now we'll, we've, got to get, we've got to go out row by row and please observe. The, the distance between each person as uh, as you leave. Um, Again, that speaks, if I may, that speaks to a number of questions where people have picked up on Fiona's use of the word bond. Um, you, you talked about a bond between the audience and the performers and so on. And there's clearly a good few people worrying that somehow that bond is broken. Um, kind of either, well, it's clearly temporarily broken, but there's people worrying as to whether it's sort of irrevocably broken uh, or whether we can somehow get back to that even in a socially distanced theatre space. Do we, yeah. 
maybe all of them could talk about this in the Greek context because you know the theater had to be invented obviously and it got be- it, it obviously hit some it's hit some point in our communal life that we thought this is a really good idea so they built these vast amphitheaters so mm-hmm. cities could come and be together and and I think it is broken yeah I, I don't think I certainly would want to be in a theater um I wouldn't want to be in a half filled theater because my association is that you are shoulder to shoulder with somebody it's something we didn't take much notice of until this covid we didn't notice how important the cram getting in matters the cram of sitting next to strangers matters I don't think we realized it until now and like me it's it's broken it's going to be quite broken for a long time I, I don't know young people might might break through it and not mine but if it goes on being airborne and can be carried by asymptomatic young people mm-hmm. then none of us want that to happen right and then in that sense then an epidaurus type outdoor uh, auditorium or, or space is not going to make any difference really um better not nothing really. i think sorry better than nothing well yes but but i i think i, I agree with fiona we won't we won't be able to get back that sense of of the shared experience until we're all uh, crammed together again. Um, until we're not suspicious of each other. You know, now we've been turned out each other into potential enemies, you know, mm-hmm. un- unwittingly, but unwitting enemies. That's mm-hmm. not what the theatre's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I do hope that, Fiona, that you will, once we can once again get big audiences together, that you will do it another tragedy for us. Yeah. I can feel one coming on. <laughs> <laughs> um, another another question that's come through is is in a sense um, it's funny because there are quite a few of the questions are somatic and to do with the bodily the bodily experience of being there. Um, and another one is is actually directed to you as a performer, Fiona, in terms of character. So you talked about how um, you know a performer needs to find the character inside them and so on somebody's asking a sort of reverse question which is have you ever found it difficult to shrug off a character um and has a character's misery feelings and so on leaked into your own personal feeling whether that's Medea or Winnie or you know has that gone on beyond the the end of the show for you I I've always denied that they have any effect on me but I I think given that I haven't performed on stage for a bit I can see the effect they did have on me when I did Medea on Broadway, we were doing eight shows a week. And, you know, at its best, uh, I was saying this recently to Oliver, that at its best, when you're performing the play, you're not doing the play at the audience. You're experiencing the thing as new, and you're just as surprised when a messenger turns up as the audience is. Oh my goodness, he turns up because you're so on the track of the play. You're just following the track. It's like watching a movie whilst being in it. It's, it's, um, in that way, also the actors are part of the the com- communality of it. So, um, sorry, I've forgotten your question now. Um, well, so d- does wait, wait, taking it off? No, I, I never had a problem shaking it off, but I did take about a year to get over Medea. Right. <laughs> so, so something must have affected me. I think it made me depressed. I used to wake up on a Monday very depressed, and I think it wasn't the sorrow of the story of the play, but the mental concentration on that sort of subject all week. <laughs> isn't good for you necessarily one might ask a similar question of a scholar oliver has all this time spent with tragedies done you harm (laughs) it it may well have but i i've i've always thought that actually um a scholar who's going to work on tragedy needs to be um have some equanimity um 
I, I'm always reminded of this wonder, uh, this a tangent, but you'll see where I'm coming from. Uh, a book I read many years ago by Alfred Harvage, in which he made up uh, two uh, episodes from Shakespeare's life, uh-huh. and uh, in their letters. And Shakespeare, in one of them, Shakespeare says, um, "I'm absolutely, utterly depressed at the moment. The, the, I think he actually said the plague is absolutely terrible. Life is awful, uh, and I'm composing Twelfth Night." And then another one, he says, uh, everything's going so well. It's been ever the mighty success. Uh, the theatre's thriving. My family's happy. And I'm writing King Lear. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I feel that um, in order to be a scholar of tragedy, you have to have, you do have to have some, some resilience um, uh, and um, some ability to, to make fun of it almost. Yes. Um, and uh, whether that's done me harm or good. Um, uh, I've, but, seen but awful, are, I've seen an awful lot of tragedies in my life, <laughs> an awful lot of uh, that were done well, some absolutely wonderful, memorable ones. We've, we've, we've touched on a few of those this evening and um, some terrible ones. Yeah. Fiona, you, you said yes to fun. Well, I think Oliver, you know, when he's taught brilliantly about tragedy, has made a whole generation of all his students and generations of his students love the humanity within the plays. And in the end, when he says fun, th- there's a huge amount of humor in, in, in Medea. And it's not oldie Greek humor. It's mm-hmm. the humor of people just being together and mm-hmm. their be- sense of betrayal about each other, what women say about men, what men say about women remains as true you know, now as it was then. And all the same problems arrive in a marriage. And recognition of those problems makes people laugh a lot. And that's a, that's a great, a huge pleasure. And when I did... Um, Electra, I used to adore the kind of fights with Clytemnestra, where Clytemnestra would want to hit you and she couldn't hit me and she was trying to hit me. You know, all of these things are very humorous, but they're part of what happens when you add flesh to these brilliantly spare words. And there's a kind of bitterness and a sweetness. It makes me think of Keats um, on King Lear when he says he must taste the bittersweet of this Shakespearean fruit. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking in, in, in Medea, for example, when she says to Jason, go off, you know, go off and enjoy your new, your new bit yeah. of skirt. Uh, and it's, yeah. uh, it's bitter, um, bitter and sweet. As often happens on these um, events, you're already answering some of the questions that are coming in. Um, <laughs> and, in, in and in particular, I think in a way you've already answered this question, but you might want to take it on more straightforwardly, which is what do you think, um, uh, Fiona, that, uh, that um, Euripides and the, the other tragedians and the Greek audience would have made of your version of Medea? Um, is it, would they recognize in the way that you're talking about a kind of essential human or a set of human uh, traits there? Or I mean, do you ever do this kind of pl- transplanting of, of what would they make of what I'm doing in the same way as I'm making something of what they made? It's very hard always, isn't it, to talk about, I mean, they probably wouldn't understand a thing we were doing, but they would be shocked, I suppose, at the amount of violence that we now allow on the stage when they mm-hmm. didn't need it. They were more innocent and more, uh, and therefore more shockable. And I think they were all the better for that. That doesn't mean they were unsophisticated, but they weren't, we've become very jaded by, you know, watching too many movies. So I think we now are always trying to not be more violent, but we have to, somehow slip the violence in in a way that really uh, arrests the audience. I, I think they didn't need that. They needed to hear somebody was being murdered and they were probably covering their faces. I think they were much more innocent. 
I, I hope I'm right. I see what you're saying. It, it is interesting that in Hippolytus, actually, Hippolytus is brought on having had this terrible, uh, um, his chariot has smashed and he's been dragged along the ground and he's brought on dying, uh, mangled and dying, and, and, mm -hmm. and does die just before the end of the play, which is unusual for him. Yes, so they yeah, see so that, him. That's, that's as it were dying live on stage um, in inside the play, as opposed to in a messenger speech or off. off stage. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. Only because again, as somebody who works on on Racine, he's busy dying off stage, and it's it's the big long speech about how he's mangled and all the rest of it that yeah. that affects the audience most. Um, where precisely what you're saying, Fiona, about hearing about it is is also kind of physically affecting. Yeah, and the messenger speeches are always very good in, in, in Greek tragedies. They do, I mean, if you need a very, very good actor to be the messenger, yeah, yeah, to say this is what happened. I mean, the chariot race, which is, of course, a lie in, in Electra, and then he hit the post and he came around again and he turned over and it mangled them, the audience. I mean, you if it's well-written and well-performed, you see the race much more clearly than if you were trying to make the race happen in a in a flashback, you know. It's... it's um. It's still the act of imagination, but when it's fused with good writing, it, 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 it's unmatchable. Talking about well-written and well-performed, a few questions, a few people have asked, both of you actually, um, what are some of your favorite versions or productions of tragedies in the last few years? They're asking you to reminisce a bit, but to remember what, what worked for you. I adored Iphigenia at Aulis at, um, at um, Arya Manushkin's theatre, because I love seeing plays in other languages. Um, I mean, my French is as awkward as a, you know, as it can be, but I, I can enjoy it. I just thought that was superb. There's a section in it where um, the chorus were dancing and Iphigenia has agreed to die and she's being taken by the chorus, which is, you know, the force, you, you don't have to, know anything academic about the play to feel it they're just with her pushing her towards her death and the mother was trying to stop the chorus by holding onto their legs it was pitiful and she was just and they kept dancing so you saw the force of fate was so much greater than a mother just trying to stop uh, any random person by their legs that's one of the greatest things i've ever seen i, I would agree i think ariane rushkin's laser creed is one of the greatest uh, performances I've seen it but talking about Greek tragedy I was I was personally involved in, in the Peter Hall Tony Harrison or a style you know that is that as a young kid I went to rehearsals I mean I was just uh, used to answer questions but uh, that that may had a huge effect on me and a, a very strong memory um, Electra in the Barbican um, uh, the uh, very strong, um, another Medea, Ninagawa, Yukio Ninagawa's Medea, I thought was absolutely wonderful um, and, and, and memorable. Um, and Katie Mitchell, um, Katie Mitchell did, did a, a great Trojan Women. Um, yeah, so these, these, she also did a great Iphigenia, didn't she? I thought and that she was... did Iphigenia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. Peter Stein, uh, again, you know, I, I regard, so I mean, we, we're, we're, we're naming the great directors of our of our day, really. Yeah, we are. We should, yeah, we should have you all around the table. We say Deborah Warner as well. For, for, Sorry? For, yeah, we're going to add Deborah, Deborah Warner as well for Medea and Electra. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we've got time for a few more questions. And um, 
the next one um, has to do with um, a sort of the. It's a it's a variant on the bond that you talked about, Fiona. You also talked about complicity, and at one point, at one point, collusion. Um, uh, you, you had a lovely phrase. I, I, it was so good I wrote it down that the, the audience are collusive in the logic of revenge in the plays. Um, and I just wondered if you might think both of you a bit more about uh, that side of the bond that performance creates between an audience and the performers. Um, so it's not just a bond of community um, and, if you like, feeling cramped ill and, and close next to each other. It's also somehow complicit in the terrible things that are happening in front of us. Um, yes, a play I played a very small part in, I, well, maybe I played, um, was on the radio, I, I was in Oedipus, but you know, Oedipus, uh, hears his his wife says to him, you know, he says, what, what was what was your husband like? And she says, um, he he looked very like you. Yeah. Now, you know, there's such that was so daring, like a matador. The writing comes right up to Oedipus and says, mm -hmm. dare you not notice that she says that the man you killed looked a bit like you, and you were running away from the fate that said, you know. The, he's colluding at some level, and I think that sort of writing is genius because we all know when we get a funny feeling about something, we usually write because the information has been given. You just haven't wanted to take it. Mm. I, I think that plays are full of that, and in that way, they're very sophisticated. They're they're not just arguments, 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 arguments. You know, I I think I, they're. I, you I, know, I, Electra hates her mother. Why? Because she overly loves her father. You know, mm. that's a fault. Mm -hmm. And I liked your idea also that the audience is drawn in to collude with the characters. And you, you don't only collude with the nice people. You don't only collude with the sweet no. innocent. No, no. Uh, and um, a revenge is very, very important here. And, you know, mm. you, you understand revenge. Um, yeah. You know, you may, you, you may not like it. You, you, it's horrifying. It can lead to terrible vendettas and so on. But you, you understand it. In fact, it, it, I, I, I jotted down because um, Shylock's speech which starts, you know, hath, uh, hath not a due hand, mm -hmm. uh, which ends and, you know, so shall we not have revenge? And it includes in it, uh, when he talks about the, the, um, the humanity that, that Jews sh share with the, the Christians in the, in the play, um, are we not subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means? It seemed to me that's so striking that one of the things that's happened, you know, uh, to humanity now, um, uh, you know, we're told that universalization is 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 a very dangerous, um, a problematic uh, idea. Mm -hmm. But w with this uh, COVID, um, it's shared by all humanity. We are we are subject to the same diseases and healed by the same means. Um, so uh, that that's perhaps a bit of a a, a bit of a ramble. But Not I at all, Oliver. In fact, it, it precisely addresses another one of the questions, which perhaps we can end with, which is, um, so looking back at the, the Greek plays, there's the whole notion of hubris and other kind of tragic flaws and so on. Um, might we think that COVID and this plague has revealed a number of flaws which are endemic in our society? Um, one of them is precisely what you were talking about just now, the degree to which universality is or isn't accepted and the degree of humanity of others isn't is or isn't accepted um and is yeah can we believe that theater will somehow remind us restore us um give us back uh something of that 
collective humanity, or is that too romantic of us? Um, the messenger in Medea says, call no man happy for no man is. I, I've always thought that's one of the great, great lines of all time. Yeah. But we thought we were happy. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I don't, I don't think the plays are, uh, they're, they're not crime and punishment plays. Nor, none of the great tragedies are, are, are simple crime and punishment, simple, you know, the, 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 the uh, people do wrong and then they get struck down for it. It's not as simple as that. Yeah. But I mean, you're right that uh, there are lessons, aren't there? I mean, people are learning lessons about our, but particularly I think the environmental lessons mm -hmm. that are coming out of this, that, you know, we've maltreated, we've maltreated our world Mm -hmm. um, and the, you know, to, uh, uh, James Lovelock, who's now at 103 or something like that, uh, saying with Gaia that uh, you know we've maltreated the world, and the world the world will will get a will tr maltreat humanity back if we don't look out. Mm -hmm. mm. I think we know that, isn't it? That's why we, there's a slight sort of embarrassment about this thing. We can't really blame, it, despite maybe America tried to blame China for it, but actually. We all know there's, there's a sort of group responsibility for what's happened. Every mm -hmm. plastic bag we dump into the sea, every, you know, we, we're all part of that. Mm -hmm. so, but again, I think that that takes us back to um, Oliver's theory of inoculation in a way, which is that, um, that the, the plays um, in some sense tell us stuff we already know, but mm -hmm. that we didn't want to acknowledge or that we didn't, that, that didn't feel Yes. You know, is that right, Oliver, or am I, or am I missing no, your theory? No, I think that that's actually developing. It's going beyond what I'd thought, and I like I like it a lot. And I, you know, you know, I hope I hope we can salvage something from this bad time, this time when we we haven't been able to gather together in theatres, we haven't been able to to have close physical um, uh, contact with people. Um, we've, we've and as, as I think you were saying, Fiona, you know, we distrust people. Uh, we were in the queue of the other day in a, in a supermarket and these people behind us kept on coming up to about a, a foot behind us, you know, and we got very angry about it. But um, uh, the, the, this time, it's, I, I, I do hope that you're right, that we'll learn something from it and, and, and take something like an inoculation away from it. Fiona, do you wish to add to that? Does it have the last word or sure? I no, I think we have the last word, but you know, it's just something about what 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 Oliver says about it's just about being humble. We have to be humble now in relation to this, and mm -hmm. in relation to, and it's how you get to discover plays. Actually, is to be humble in the knowledge as you try and discover what's in them. Just be humble, and maybe something comes in. Well, one thing that we have gained from these times is this kind of event, um, and it's yeah. We're now time, I think, to draw this particular one to a close. Um, but not before thanking both of you enormously for, 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 for standing up to the challenge of doing this weird thing online and so on and so forth. Um, but it's been an enormous pleasure, certainly for me, and I think for others um, out there, um, judging from the questions that have come in. You might like to know that we've had people in the UK, US, India, Brazil, Canada, Greece, and more um, uh, here. So um, before I do a little spiel about the end of the series, um, once again, Enormous thanks, Oliver, and enormous thanks to you also, Fiona. Thank you. It's been great fun. So uh, that brings us sadly to the to an end this evening. Um, of course, once again, thank you to our amazing speakers for this inspiring and enjoyable session. 
Um, thank you also to all the viewers at home for watching and for your comments and questions. Thank you too to the others who will join us uh, another time. In other words, who aren't watching live, but will join later uh, on YouTube. Um, and I also want to thank again, uh, everyone at uh, in Torch um, uh, who's made this possible. Um, we have at Torch been effectively blown away by the phenomenal support and encouragement that we've received in this uh, Big Tent Live series as we've ventured into a new digital format. Um, I think it's worth saying that over the course of the series, we've been joined by over 20,000 viewers from 23 countries. So the kinds of bonds that we've been talking about this, this evening or in the last hour or so are clearly there and waiting to happen um, and indeed instantiated in, in this series amongst other things. Tonight's event was the last for this term, um, but we do hope you'll join us again when we come back in September. We're all taking a break for August. Uh, come back in September for more, more Big Tent live events. Um, if you would uh, like to look back, uh, all 17 events from the series are, as I say, available to watch again on our website via the YouTube channel, Torch Oxford. And in fact, if you have any thoughts or comments about any of the events you've viewed as part of this series, please do take a moment to let us know. You'll find a link in the event description and the live chat uh, below. Uh, it'll help us as we kind of craft the next series because um, it looks like we might be in this mode for some time to come. We wish you all then a relaxing and enjoyable August, wherever you may be, and look forward to welcoming you back to our big tent again in September. Thank you, Oliver and Fiona again. And thank you all and goodbye for now. Okay.